Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh leads us through the book of Numbers. During this sermon, we look at and recount the journey and events prior to God allowing Israel to enter the promised land and how these events revealed the heart of man and the heart of God. You can join us by turning your Bibles to the book of Numbers as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Murmuring Against God. We're in this series where we are um, walking through the storyline of God's plan of redemption, um, trying to understand the Old Testament, what God has done before Christ in preparation for the coming of Christ, um, we said we were going to do this in about six months. That's still my plan. But if you've noticed, we're like four months in and still really close to the beginning of the book. That is because these heavy, heavy foundational truths God put in the first five books of the Bible, what we call uh, the Pentateuch, the five uh, books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a great deal of the weightiest of truths that God has ever revealed are at there at the beginning. So we've been walking through seeing the storyline after we finish the book of Numbers, even getting into next week, the pace is going to pick up. We'll be able to cover a lot of time periods in one, in one Sunday, but still what is happening um, even here today, we will cover 40 years today, but a lot of big things happening in the book of Numbers. So I desperately need God's help to preach. We all need God's help to receive his word with the right heart. So let's bow and let's ask for God's help. Um, oh, Lord, our God, Father, we cry out to you and we are asking. On one, on one level, Lord, we're asking what seems very simple. For help to hear your word and to respond to it. But God, we understand that in the heavenly realm, there's so much more going on so many other factors and God we need we desperately need your grace Lord for this time to mean anything if you do not come and you do not help me to preach and help all of us oh Lord to have our hearts affected and you to shine light on your word then this will be a waste of time but God, you have given us promises and Lord, we are coming to you in confidence. Lord, knowing, believing this will not be a waste of time. Father, we pray, speak to us through your word. Captivate our attention. Show us your ways. Show us your purposes. Show us all the parts about you that are beautiful. All of your glory, God. Show us your mercy. Show us your love. Show us the things that are cause us to delight in, but Father, also show us those parts that are uncomfortable, but they are your righteous character, your judgment, your wrath. And God, bring us to love every part of who you are. Show us what you have done. Show us your work of saving a people for yourself, oh God. So please bless this time. Grant me grace to be useful. Grant all of us, oh God, your help to be changed and transformed by your word. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we are in this point in this study, 
A um, couple weeks back, we looked at the uh, book of Exodus and some of the events there. The early part of Exodus was an action-packed section. A lot of things covered in the first half there. And then if you remember, we saw it sort of slow down at the last part of Exodus. And it was mostly laws, instructions about this tabernacle and the ways of worship that God instructed them in this old covenant. And then last Sunday... We looked at absolutely no events whatsoever. There was no, you know, no dramatic moment that happened. It was entirely the book of Leviticus looking at hundreds of individual rules, individual laws um, about these things. And so really no time frame was done. It was all given while Moses was up there on the mountain and he came back and he delivered it to the people. Today when we pick up in the book of Numbers the storyline begins again, and we're going to see many, many events that transpire. I'll go ahead and tell you, um, the book of Numbers is a really important book. It is quoted and referenced many times in the New Testament. We won't get to everything of the book of Numbers, and maybe even there'll be some parts you're like, oh man, he didn't cover <laughs> Balaam and the donkey and you know some of those kinds of things, but we won't be able to cover every detail, but I want to show you the storyline and lay the biggest foundational truths. So where we left off when it comes to storyline is the very end of the book of Exodus, if you wanted to flip there real quick, you could, uh, Exodus 40. The last thing, the last event that happens there is they completed the tabernacle, all the utensils, all the furniture, everything God told them to do. And then verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. They did everything as God said and God's presence came among them. Then there's the book of Leviticus where we pick up today in the book of Numbers, Israel is still camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, the same place where they received the law, same place they received the Ten Commandments and all of these things. And we will pick up then in the storyline of what continues. So as we look at the book of Numbers today and these events that take place, let me, let me tell you four things that the book of Numbers does. And this will be the points that we look at. If you're taking notes, here are the four things the book does. Number one, it numbers the people in a couple of censuses. Um, that's why it has the name. That's why the book has the name Numbers. It numbers the people who had come out of Egypt. Number two, it recounts the journey and the events of the wilderness. Number three, in doing all of that, this is one of the places that God really reveals the heart of man. Th third thing, it reveals the heart of man. And along with that, even more importantly, it reveals the character of God. The fourth thing that the book does is preach Christ in the same ways that we've been seeing the Old Testament preaches Christ. Sometimes it's very explicitly, but many times, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, there are these symbolic kinds of references that later on in the New Testament, it will look back and Jesus will say things like, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever will look on him and believe will be saved. So you have all of these kinds of ways and the book preaches Christ. So we're going to walk through these four things that the book does in an overview kind of way. If you're taking notes, here is number one, the numbering of the people. There are two 
censuses, hard word to say, in the book, the first was taken like within the first year after Israel came out of Egypt. They're camped at Mount Sinai. Uh, God gives them instructions to do a census to count the men of war. Numbers chapter 2, if you want to flip there real quick and just see a quick reference in Numbers 2 and find verse 32 there. Numbers 2, 32. Um, above that, if you look, you see lots of names and lots of numbers. You're welcome. I skipped that part. Okay. But what it tells us is all the tribes, all the camps. Here's how many were in Judah. And then even Judah's sons. Here's how many were in this section. And in 32, these are the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's household. The total of the numbered men of the camps by their army, 603,550. The Levites, however, were not numbered among the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out um, everyone, uh, everyone by his family according to his father's household. Uh, notice a few things about the census real quick, just to understand why. The first thing that the, the census does is it does not give the total number of Israelites, it is a military census because this is a military campaign that they are on their way to go do. There'll be more of that coming up. This is a military census and the census takes a number of the fighting men. That's why the Levites are not numbered. That's the second thing to notice. The Levites are not numbered because God did not put them in battle. They were called to a different kind of calling in the worship and the instruction and the ministry there at the tabernacle. You can read more about that in chapter three. God goes into greater explanation of some of those things there. But the, but the last thing to notice about the census that it does is this. Friends, we are given an objective number showing God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham. God came to a 99-year-old man with no legitimate heir. And he said, I will make of you a nation. 500-ish years later, there are 603,000 fighting men. How many came to Egypt? You remember that? When Joseph was there, how many came? It was 70. Not 70,000, 70. 70. And now after this time of slavery, hardship, bondage, and difficulty, God has been at work. There are 603-ish thousand people. And then here's why there was another census later. I have to spoil a little bit of the drama, but I'm hoping you know it already from reading your Bibles. The main event that happens in the book is that Israel will set out from Mount Sinai. They will travel through the wilderness in a pretty straight course. They will come to the southern edge of this land of promise, the land of Canaan, this, this land flowing with milk and honey, the, the blessing that God is going to give his people where they will live as God's people under God's rule in a kingdom of God. He brings them to the edge of the land and the people refuse to enter. They will not trust the Lord. And God will turn them right back around. They will spend 40 years in the wilderness. Wasn't supposed to be that way. But they will go back. They will spend 40 years in the wilderness, giving time for all of the adults to die. And then God brings those children into the land of promise. And so at the end of that 40 years, and as God is going to bring a new people, a new generation into the land, he takes another census 
Um, you could look at it, numbers 2651, but I'll just tell you the number is around 600,000 again. And then we're told the number of Levites and such. This is the people that God will then bring into the land. So that's where the book gets its name and, and why. There is a significant thing that happens there. God has fulfilled his promises. More than the stars in the sky, sand on the seashore. Here's one part of the fulfillment of that promise. We've already looked at the greater fulfillment comes as every soul turns to Christ, we become made a part of the people of God. Well, here's the second part, and this is where we'll spend uh, more, a little longer time. Uh, Israel's wilderness experience. Israel's wilderness experience. I guess one more thing that I should add that Numbers does do is it does have more ceremonial law and teaching, more, more aspects of living under that covenant. In fact, chapters 3 through 10... Um, are all more laws and things. These are sections that would be helpful for you to read uh, for later parts in the Bible. So for instance, the, the law of the Nazarites that comes up later in the Bible, that's explained here in the book of Numbers and such. And so there's still more going on, but we pick up the storyline at the end of chapter 10. If you wanna flip there, the end of chapter 10, Israel finally sets out from Mount Sinai. So chapter 10, look at verse 11, and you can read along with me there. Now in the second year, so it hasn't been two years past, this is one year's past, they're in the second year. That's how long they've been at Mount Sinai. So they've been at Mount Sinai roughly a year, a little over a year. They have been camping there at the foot of that mountain, accomplishing all the things that God instructed them to do. They have been getting ordered. They have been getting organized. They have been getting mobilized. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, the standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their army, set out first with Nashon, the son of Amminadab, over its army. And then if you kind of briefly look down, you got all these different tribes, families, according to their standards, it's called. God gave them instructions on even which family group was to walk after another. This is highly organized. Friends, this is a military campaign. This is marching as to war because that is what is coming up. God is using them as his hand of wrath to come to these peoples and drive them out as he gives them the land. When we come to the book of Joshua, we'll spend a little bit more time talking about that whole thing, the, the war and such that goes on. But what would happen is, as they journeyed through the wilderness, um, the, God had been present with them in a pillar of cloud. So there was a visible way that they could see, not the face of God, but the presence of God. Guys, at nighttime, this cloud burned with fire. This is amazing. There were no atheists in Israel. They saw the visible presence of God. By the way, a lot of help in teaching about what faith is. They knew his existence and yet did not trust him. Faith is not simply believing God is there. Faith is depending, relying, trusting, believing in the Lord. But the cloud would lift up whenever it was time for them to gather their stuff. And guys, this was a major operation. I mean, think about this. Their tents, their babies, 
their livestock, the army of workers of the Levites, who all had jobs to do, would tear down the tabernacle, pick up the furniture, gather the utensils, all of these things. Four men would carry the Ark of the Covenant on long poles so as not to touch the Ark itself, and they would set out on this journey. So this is the first leg of the journey through the wilderness at Sinai. Um, in chapter 10, if you jump down to verse 33 there, just, just one more little, little part I want you to see. Verse 33, thus they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. They take a pretty straight path through the wilderness and come to that southern edge of the land of Canaan. God gave them the instructions in chapter 13 that they were to send 12 spies into the land. God is the one who's going to give them the land. God is the decisive one, but God is using means to bring that about. You got a pretty big biblical principle there. God is the decisive one acting. He is giving them the victory in every battle. He is the one who guides and leads and ultimately will be the one who gives them the land, but they don't sit on the couch while it happens. God is using them, okay? There is application for you and I. The spies go in for 40 days. They walk all the way up through to the northern part of the land. They come back through. And then in chapter 13, verse 27, here's what the spies come back and say. Verse 27, thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. So, the spies come back and they say, hey, you said this land was amazing. God said this is a land that flows with milk and honey. That's a metaphorical way of saying it's great. It's overflowing with resources and food. They brought, black, brought back a cluster of grapes that was apparently just amazing, like nothing they'd ever seen before. Here's its fruit. This is incredible. As you're reading this for the first time, you're going, this is going to be great. Everybody's happy. They're obeying the Lord. La-di-da. It doesn't end there. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak living there. Strong, mighty people. Verse 29. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. That's the southern region. And that's another strong, mighty warrior people. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea, by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw are men of great size. Now, maybe they were exaggerating. Maybe it was the truth. 
Verse 33, there, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are a part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our sight, and so we were in their sight. So there's the report. We're going to learn that 10 out of the 12 spies tell the people, there's no way we can do this. You got all, all kinds of leadership principles going on in this. But what will the people do about it? We're going to read through most of chapter 14. So you can kind of just settle in. We're going to, we're going to start reading through. What will the people do about it? Chapter 14, beginning verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. We've heard that before. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Look how disastrous this is going. Look, look, at, the, look at the turn of what was happening here. Excitement turns to depression and a a dark despair and a hopelessness because of listening to the words of these men rather than the voice of God. Look at how incredulous they are. Look at how they accuse God of wrong. Look at how they accuse Moses of wrong. And then look what they want to do. Let's pick a leader and let's just go back to Egypt. You know, we hear that and we think, how could anybody be so dumb? But friends, then we take a step back and uh, we, look, we look around. Do we not see this every single day? Do we not see every single day, not exactly the same, but rejecting the will of God to follow a way that's easier, it feels safer, but it's utter stupidity. And now that we're feeling, you know, kind of high and mighty talking about other people, do we not see this in our own life? Friends, do we not see the fact that again and again, every time we choose sin, every single time we choose sin, what we are doing is we are denying the will of God and taking a route that seems easier, seems safer, seems more pleasurable, but it is utter stupidity. It's not only wrong, it's unintelligent in light of the fact that there is a God who rewards his people. We see this. Friends, the Bible says that as a dog returns to its vomit, is a sinner who returns to his sin. That's the heavenly perspective. Friends, as angels look in at our lives when we choose sin, what they see is chapter 14, verses one through four. But now let's, let's walk through the rest of this chapter and, and see the response of Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb and then the Lord. Start in verse five with me and let's read. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land through which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. 
Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me, and how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by now. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Oh goodness, there is a lot of theology about prayer right there. Sometime on your own. Study this out. Look, look at how Moses prays. He asks for God to pardon the people, not because they deserve it, not because they are worthy, but he gives two reasons. For the fame of your name, for the glory of your name, that all the nations see that you are glorious. And then secondly, according to your loving kindness. God, I'm not asking you to forgive them because they, were, they deserve it. I'm asking you to forgive them because you're merciful. And then he quotes that passage from Exodus 34 when the Lord spoke his name and his character to him. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. One of the things we've mentioned already as well is, remember, God knew he wasn't going to destroy the people. God wanted this episode to happen. God wanted Moses to intercede for the people. Why did he do it? How else would you and I know these things? How else would you and I know what this kind of attitude and this kind of rebellion does to God? How offensive, how insulting it is? How else would we know about Moses' intercession? And how else would we know what it is like that the Lord Jesus intercedes on our behalf by his blood even now? We'll jump to verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Jump down to verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I surely will do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and up upward, you have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. 
But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons will be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do to all... I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. You can stop there. It's a pretty heavy kind of sentence. God declares that every adult, so we just numbered, we just took a census. Guess what? The census, those men of war, those those that were counted, they will die. They will fall in the congregation over the course of the next 40 years. Friends, this is not a 40-year timeout. This is a 40-year capital punishment. All will die, and then God will bring their children in. The very children that they thought could would become plunder and prey, God says, I will give them the land. Now, if we were looking at only this today, there's a part here I'd like to spend more time on, but I'll just pose a quick question to you. And that is, friend, do you think that this is severe? Do you think that this is harsh? How you answer that question reveals a lot about what you think about God and sin. The world around us is constantly looking at the Bible and going, it's harsh. It's harsh. Friends, do you see that God shows grace here? Friends, sin always carries a capital punishment. Sin always carries a capital punishment one way or the other, now or later, or you or Christ. Sin always carries the wages of death. It's not too harsh. The question is not, why did God do this? Friends, the question we need to ask is, why has the Lord let me live so long when I have rebelled against him so many times? Because of who God is, sinning against him always carries a capital punishment. Rather than destroy them on this day, God is giving them time. And that is an act of grace. Well, there's more that happens after this. See, the people mourn all that night. And throughout that night, they come up with a plan. They think it's a very good plan. They think God is going to be really happy with their plan. Throughout the night, they decide, okay, we're really sorry. (laughs) And the next day, they rally themselves together and they decide, okay, we change our minds. Now we're going to take the land. We're going to do this. Let's everybody get together. We're going to go in. We're going to take the land. And Moses is like, you've got to be kidding me. Are you? What is wrong with you? Are you dense? Okay, that might have been added. It's not really in the text there. Okay, but what, what are you thinking in this? God is not with you. In fact, there's a, there's, a, there's a really interesting verse in the midst of this. Right after God gave that sentence and he said, I'm sending you out in the wilderness. There's a verse that says, you got to leave now because the Canaanites are near. Well they, were, well, they weren't worried about that. God, there was no concern there while God's protection was on them. God has removed his protection. They they are no longer going to be able to just march in there and do this. They were never going to take this land by human strength. It was going to be by the power of God working through them. But they do not listen. And they march into the land. And they are beaten in an embarrassing fashion 
and they must retreat and run back. And solemnly, can you imagine that day? Solemnly pack up their belongings and go back into that dry desert. There is a little bit of a word of hope. In chapter 15, read the first couple verses there though. So they're being beaten happens there in chapter 14. Uh, but look at verse 15. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where you are to live. Do you, do you see a little bit of the poetic beauty there? They've been beaten. God says, you're not going in now, but he is speaking of the day that they will enter. When you enter this land. And he gives some more rules and laws concerning this. So, Number shows us these events, and we're still going to see more events, but let's come to our point number three here. The third thing that the book of Numbers shows us, and that is this. Here's, here's how I've got this worded. Israel despised the Lord by grumbling in their hearts and with their lips. Israel despised the Lord by grumbling. Numbers is kind of a depressing book. It's truth you got to know. I mean, already in what we've read, chapter 16, chapter 14, like already, have you not seen a dozen truths that conflict with what the world wants to think about God, who he is, his character, how he interacts with us? Okay, this is truth you need, but it's not exactly like a happy book. We see 40 years, the the bulk of the book is 40 years of discontented people griping during the Exodus. We saw the people whenever they came to the Red Sea. What did they do? They grumbled against Moses. On the other side of the sea, when they were only three days out of slavery, they began to grumble against Moses. In Exodus 16, do you remember where we saw them moan out, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. You brought us out here to starve. Moses, is because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? And then they continue at the end of chapter 10. Remember, we saw them set out. How many days into the wilderness were they? Three days. Look at chapter 11. Let's see what happens. Jump back to chapter 11. Look at the first part here. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Watch verse four. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. I'd like for that verse to get burned into our memory. I'd encourage you make that one of the verses maybe you underline in your Bible because of this, friends. This is how the Lord thinks of a discontented heart. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. Verse 5, we remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at except this manna. If you jump to chapter 12, in the first couple of verses there, even Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own brother and sister, join in on the grumbling. Can you believe that? Maybe you can. But he sent out the spies. In chapter 13, we saw the people mourn. In chapter 14, we saw them angry and sad. In verse 2, they cry out that the Lord is bringing us into the land so we'll fall by the sword. Do you see that in a heart that is bitter about circumstances, there is a root belief 
Maybe you've never seen it before. But when we complain about life, there's a root belief there that the Lord does not have my best in mind. That the Lord is not really working for my good. The people want a new leader, want to go back to Egypt. You have all the events of God sentencing them. And then chapter 15 is new instructions. Chapter 16, we read in our scripture reading, Korah's rebellion. Tell me that's not a terrifying picture. To my knowledge, that is the only place in the Bible where people are brought down alive into hell. That's terrifying judgment. They cry out to Moses and accuse him of exalting himself. By the way, name one moment when Moses ever exalted himself. Korah and Dathan and Abiram are sentenced. Those who had joined with Korah's rebellion, they were sentenced. And do you remember that, that part? The next day after it all happened and we, we think like the next day everybody's got like some perspective. The next day what happens? They all gather against Moses. and like, You caused this. You killed the Lord's people. Moses didn't do that. God did. And so there's more. This happens again and again and again. It is a depressing book of 40 years of discontented people griping again and again. And the, the repeated theme are the difficult conditions and the food. That's the repeated theme over and over again. We're tired of this manna, tired of sleeping on the floor, tired of not having a land. You told us you were bringing us to a land of milk and honey. Look at the desert. Um, jump to chapter 21. I did want to, at some point, make sure I read this section right here. Chapter 21, start in verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents. We believe those to be venomous snakes among the people and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you intercede for the Lord. That he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, so like on a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live and Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. The primary point that we see here that God addresses and God shows is some of human nature. It is some of the results of the corruption and depravity of our hearts. See, friends, it's easy for you and I here to, to look on these sections of the Bible and go, oh, those dumb people. God is not singling out a people. God is showing human nature, friends. God is showing a tendency that we have as sinners. Friends, you and I have a tendency in the pride of our hearts, in the lust of our hearts, to, to complain to grumble, to murmur, to, to think I ought to be getting treated better than this. And that arouses jealousy and lust and coveting. And there is a strong message here about complaining. 
And one of the things we're shown here, friends, is that kind of attitude of a, of a complaining against circumstances of life or maybe even singling out God intentionally, it is actually insulting God because he is the determiner of all the things that we cannot control. Friends, think for a second about complaining. There are a couple parts to it. The first and the most obvious part is the voicing of discontent with the lips. But you know, the Bible's always showing us what's deeper. Like it's, it's easy to see outward action. The Bible is always taking us below the waters to show here's what's going on way down deep. And the Bible will show us the root all the way to the bottom, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, but coming up a step, a step below the waters of a complaining mouth is a discontented heart. A heart that is unsatisfied. A heart that is selfishly unfulfilled and cannot be satisfied with what it has. And friends, this is why contentment is preached to us in Scripture as strongly as it is. Friends, we're commanded by God to have content hearts. We're commanded to live in joy. We're commanded to delight in the Lord. And friends, if you're going to do a study of this, on your own sometime. You want to study all that the Bible has to say on contentment. You got to look up more words than just contentment. What is the instruction concerning greed? What is greed? Greed is I'm not happy with what I have. It's not enough. I need more to be happy. Coveting for more things. I need more in order to be okay. I'm not satisfied. Over and over again, this message of contentment is, it's there in Scripture. And the Israelites who complained about their difficulties in the wilderness. Friends, there's a lofty kind of thinking that believes God owes me better than this. And, and I'll take you back to that phrase there where it said, the rabble among them had greedy desires. Now I want you to really think about what they had. They lived a life where they ate bread, drank water, and lived in a tent. And God says that them wanting more was greedy. Friends, if that's the case, then what would it mean for a people who has all that we have to never be content, never be satisfied? Friends, God addresses this in the New Testament. And he says, if we have food and water, food and covering with these, we will be content. Do you see that the Bible is giving you a standard of expectation, a standard for what is enough? How much is enough to be happy? Everybody answers that question differently from a subjective kind of way. God shows us what ought to be enough. We have him. We have him. And did he give you bread today? Rock on. You're good. It's enough. We're satisfied. And so friends, I just want to show this to you. We can sometimes think of things like contentment as a trivial matter of the Christian life and think that there are bigger matters. So sometimes Christians are kind of like, well, one of these days I'll work to get to contentment. But you know, I got I to deal with my anger first. I think the Bible is showing us it's bigger than what we consider. Your heart delighting supremely in Christ is a major part of your Christian life. A major part of your life is the life of the inner man. It's the life of the heart. It's the life of the soul. What is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest priority, great, weightiest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, 
and strength. That's an inner man kind of thing. And the Bible shows us, friends, that just like a, just like a husband who was never satisfied with his wife, but he always had to have more. I want more women to be happy. He doesn't love her. He doesn't love her if she's not enough for him. Friends, if we are like amoebas, always floating around looking to absorb more and more and more, I got to have more to be happy, we are not satisfied in Christ. He's not enough for us. And we're not loving him supremely. So, so this is why scripture teaches contentment is connected to faith. It's connected to hope. It's connected to love, loving God. And friends, this is why you can be happy. You can be satisfied if you were one of the Israelites and you could live a sweet, joy-filled existence laying on the desert floor, curling up in a goatskin blanket, eating manna and drinking water every day. Here's why you can have joy. What I'm about to say is not some spiritual cliche. It's not preacher talk. This is solemn words to stake your life upon. If you have Christ, you have everything. That's not just preacher talk. What I mean in that statement is the delight, the pleasure of having God is greater than any delight, any pleasure that money, sex, power, popularity could ever give you. Now God is... A God who is kind and oftentimes he lets blessings and gifts flow into our lives. But what if everything were removed? What if a disaster occurred and you lost everything? Could it be enough? Could having Christ be enough for you in order to have joy? If you have Christ, you have everything. I also mean that in a very literal sense. In Christ, you have everything that is good in your inheritance. Friends, if you are in Christ, there's an inheritance that is coming to you and it's really not that far away. I'm 36. If the life expectancy of preachers hold up, I'm about halfway done. It's not that much longer to go. And then there's glory. In Christ, you have an inheritance. And friends, what is the inheritance? It's everything. It's the world. I'm not exaggerating in that. That's what the Bible says. You are inheriting the world. In Matthew 25, Jesus gave that parable of the, the talents. Those who had sought him, what does he say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. Receive the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hebrews 12, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Read the last chapter of the Bible. God creates new heavens and a new earth and he gives it to his people. You're getting it all. It's just not right now. And this is why we can be content. The hope of what is to come, the confidence that I have in that which is to come gives me joy now and that is hope and it leads me to contentment. You can have joy. You have a brief stay in the wilderness and then you will cross a Jordan to glory. Friends, I'm almost done with this point. Do you realize there are Christians in India who live on a sidewalk they're born on a sidewalk. They live their whole life on a sidewalk. And then they die on that sidewalk. 
There's a reason why Joel Osteen's message has never caught a lot of traction amongst those believers. It's because it's stupid and it doesn't work. That Christian on the sidewalk is an heir of the world. That Christian has more reason to be happy, more reason for joy, more reason for sweet contentment than the most loved, powerful billionaire on the planet because he has Christ. In Christ, you have everything. And this is the source of our contentment. And so, and so Christian, I'd like to spend a lot of time applying this here, but I'm not, I'm not going to. But let me, let me just pose the question to you. Are you satisfied in Christ? Are you content? Do you feel the delight of what you have to come? The Bible shows this is rooted as a very part of faith. So friends, God meant Israel's time in the wilderness to be a time of purifying, a time of sanctifying, a time of making them holy, a time of purging off addictions to things of this world. And friends, we're called to live in a similar kind of manner, not, not to, not to uh, bring ourselves into intentional poverty necessarily. Jesus did say it's the smartest thing you could ever do to sell everything and give all the money to the poor. He did say that's a smart move, but we're not commanded we have to do that kind of thing, but we are commanded to have a contentment. And there are some ways of living that are a challenge to that. Pampering ourselves like kings can be a challenge to having contentment and to weaning ourselves off of things of this earth. But God calls us to learn this. So the book of Numbers shows us this, shows us if we have God, if you have this inheritance, you have everything. Here's the fourth thing. And the last thing that the book of Numbers does, it preaches Christ. Friends, in all kinds of ways, we've been seeing this running metaphor here. As God redeemed Israel out of slavery, so God has redeemed you, Christian, out of eternal bondage. As Israel lived a difficult time in the wilderness, so this life is a season of difficulty. It's not intended to be the glorious time until you enter the land of promise. We see this intentional connection, this way that Moses serves as a type of Christ. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, there's a verse where Moses is speaking and in a word of prophecy, he says this to the people. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. He was speaking of the coming Messiah. So, how would this coming Messiah be like Moses? Well, there are dozens of ways. As Moses had a special kind of birth, so Jesus did. As Moses had authority figures trying to kill him in his birth, so Jesus did. As Moses went up on a mountaintop and his face shone, so did Jesus. But there's a point here in that every time Jesus does it, it's better. Jesus shone with the, his own glory. Yes, as Moses delivered a law to the people, the law of the covenant, so Jesus climbed a mountain and delivered the law of the new covenant. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus showing the new covenant law. As Moses was faithful over a house, so Jesus has been more. As Moses worked miracles, Jesus has worked greater miracles. As Moses preached, Jesus has preached greater. All of those kinds of things are true. But here's a place where the early church really latched on to this. As Moses was hated by his countrymen, 
as Moses was despised and grumbled against and even rejected, so Jesus was hated by his own people, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Friends, the entirety of Jesus' ministry was spent with people opposing him and eventually conspiring to betray and kill him. And still today, this is how Jesus is treated, the true Jesus. And friends, that's saying something about human nature. We cannot look down at our nose at this people and say, oh, those bad people. No, you and I weren't there. But what the Bible shows is that that's, this was not an isolated event. It is an, it is an event that displays the outflow of man's resistance to God. We are a people who by nature resist God. I know that's not the message you're hearing in the world. They're lying. We are a people who resist God. And friends, what the meaning of repentance is, when the Bible uses that word, to turn away. You need to turn away from all of your sins. But at the core, that we must turn away from this kind of attitude. An attitude of resistance to God. An attitude of hostility to God. And so I speak to you this morning, if you have never turned to Christ to be saved, specifically, the Bible says it's not enough just that you go to church once in a while or that you pray or you consider yourself a religious person. There is a way you must turn in your heart to submit and believe in the Lord Jesus, crying out to him specifically to be saved. If you've never done that, the word from scripture is stop resisting God. You don't know me, preacher. No, there's a lot of things I don't know, but I know this. Because the Bible says this. Turn from resisting him. Turn from hostility. And believe on Christ. Submit to Christ. Every Christian in this room, we were once hostile to God, and we still struggle with ongoing hostility. The only way that our hearts change is as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever looks on Him, whoever believes on Christ, will receive eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and made to be right with Him. If you have never done this, friends, I invite you, don't leave this place until you're confident that you're right with God, that you are in right relationship with Him, and that you have peace. And if you want somebody to talk to you about that, Nothing I'd rather do today. Um, find me before you leave and we'll just talk a little bit more about what this means to turn to Christ to be saved. Look to Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, thank you for what you have done and thank you for saving a stubborn and resistant people. Father, I ask for us Christians, our church family, that you will transform us into a people who do not resist your will, but who pray, oh God, your will be done. Use us, oh God, for your purposes. Bless us today, we ask. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Murmuring Against God. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.com.
www.thepeopleshow.org. 